Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. This is the last episode of the second season, and it's amazing how much more there is to cover. I'll be taking the summer off to research, and we'll be back in September with more episodes on the intersection of history and insurance. But before I get into the last episode of season two, I need a favor. If you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, I'd love for you to take a few minutes out of your day today and review the podcast on your podcast player of choice. Rating the podcast is one of the best things you can do to support my work, and it only takes a few minutes. Want to be an even better friend of the pod? Share the pod with your friends on LinkedIn, or connect with me on LinkedIn, or both. To close out season two, I thought I'd do something extremely timely. I wanted to talk about journalism in the internet age, celebrity, tech bros, and general liability insurance. And I wanted to highlight a situation where insurance could have saved the day. So today I'm talking about the lawsuit against online news organization Gawker brought by Terry Bollea, a.k.a. Hulk Hogan. This is the same lawsuit that was funded by Peter Thiel and bankrupted Gawker entirely. This was the largest lawsuit ever brought against a publisher, and it set a precedent that we are still coming to terms with today. This is the story of how insurance could have saved Gawker, but didn't. And the very real issues brought up by the trial, namely the issue of litigation funding, bad deposition preparation, hubris, and the rising power of Silicon Valley, and how much privacy public figures are entitled to today. What's covered by insurance? Where did Gawker go wrong regarding insurance coverage? I learned a lot of interesting things in researching this episode, and I think you will too. Once upon a time, news organizations were either newspapers, magazines, or television programs. And they were uh, mostly the same. The news you got on your local CBS affiliate and the CBS Nightly News wasn't so different than the news you got from your local paper or Newsweek. <laughs> Remember when Newsweek was a thing? I do. If you were more interested in a specific topic, you could find niche publications to read. I mean, you could read People or Entertainment Weekly for your entertainment news, or you could read The Inquirer or U.S. Weekly for a slightly different, more scandalous take on entertainment. If you identified with liberal causes, you might get Mother Jones magazine. Or if you were more conservative, you might get National Review. But then the Internet happened. And I think that the moment that internet news became an important part of journalism was in 1998, when The Drudge Report, a conservative-leaning gossip blog, broke the story about Bill Clinton and a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. The internet was still new, so it took a few years to build momentum, but by 2001, online news took off in earnest. A lot of these news websites were more like gossip sites. The Drudge Report read that way, and TMZ.com, if you remember them, that was a gossip site, and BuzzFeed and The Huffington Post. Many of them had a bit of an edge, and in a lot of cases they were, well, they were mean, honestly. You could maybe call it snarky, to use a late 1990s term, but looking back, it, it was pretty mean. And if there were sites that used meanness to get clicks, Gawker was probably the queen bee. Gawker wasn't just one website. It was a pretty diverse collection of websites, some of which you might remember. For example, Jalopnik, which was about cars, or Deadspin, about sports, or Gizmodo, about technology. Even sites like Jezebel or Lifehacker. The sites might have all covered different topics, but the things they had in common were their attitudes and their owner. For the purpose of the discussion today, I'm just going to refer to these sites as Gawker and not by their individual names. Gawker was founded in 2003 by an Englishman named Nick Denton. The sites proved their bona fides as real news sources after they broke several big stories, including the sex scandal involving not-such-of-a-friend-of-the-pod, Elliot Spitzer. 
Gawker was also the first to report on Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto, and his drug use. They reported various rumors about Bill Cosby, which, as we know, turned out to be true, as well as claims about the actor Kevin Spacey's inappropriate, aggressive behavior with young men. So while Gawker's websites might have been mostly gossip about various topics and news about technology or cars, some of the gossip they reported turned out to be big news. Nick Denton, the owner of Gawker, was a character. People described him as, quote, unsentimental, contradictory, and opaque, unquote. He sounds fun. His parents were highly educated. His father was an economist and his mother was a psychotherapist. And Denton had gone to Oxford and studied politics and economics, so he was no slouch. He'd started his career as a journalist in the Financial Times, written a book, moved to San Francisco, and then started and sold two different tech companies. While I could argue that Denton didn't need any more money, I guess in his eyes he wanted more. Money was his number one goal for Gawker. Well, that and relevance. He wanted to be known. The way he saw that happening with Gawker was to get eyeballs on his pages. A lot of eyeballs. So while he first started by hiring people, not always legitimate reporters, and paying them by the article, he soon changed that to paying writers by page views. You can imagine the result of that change, focusing entirely on the number of views your article got to determine how much you got paid. Well, that made a difference in the types of things being reported and the way those articles were written. Not to mention that Denton posted the ranking of articles and writers on a big screen in the office, so you could see how you compare to your peers all the time. Though to be honest, Gawker's articles always tended toward clickbait. The change in how writers were paid just exacerbated those tendencies. In addition, Gawker writers took the unusual step of actively engaging with readers in the comments sections, and it appears that writers were encouraged by Gawker to use the comments section to post things that were potentially inflammatory, things they couldn't put in the article themselves, unproven rumors or gossip that couldn't be backed up by even anonymous sources, even conjectures that had no real basis other than they got people riled up. Denton also had a very confrontational style regarding his critics. For example, his position on lawsuits against Gawker was take no prisoners, admit no defeat, fight everything. And there were quite a few lawsuits, as you might imagine. Not only was the writing on the Gawker website often skirting the line of libel, but Gawker also had no issue posting, say, celebrity sex tapes. Fred Durst of the band Limp Biscuit sued Gawker for posting a sex tape involving him. Denton's response? He mocked Durst publicly on one of Gawker's websites and refused to back down. Here's an excerpt from the post Denton wrote about Durst's lawsuit on Gawker. Quote, there's an old saying around the Gawker offices, you're nobody until somebody hates you. But we had it wrong. It turns out you're actually nobody until some other nobody sues you. Unquote. Denton's confrontational style usually paid off. For example, Durst eventually caved, dropped the lawsuit, and even sent Gawker flowers in apology. It wasn't the first time or the last time Gawker would get sued for posting a celebrity sex tape. However, in the case of Durst, they had one advantage. They'd kept the sex tape up only for a few hours before taking it down voluntarily. Whoever at Gawker made that decision was a smart person, and maybe they should have spoken up in 2012 when Gawker published a sex tape featuring wrestler Hulk Hogan. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Just two years after the Fred Durst tape in December of 2007, Gawker posted a 400-word article titled, Peter Thiel is Totally Gay, People, by a staff writer named Owen Thomas. Nick Denton had no idea that this short article was going to eventually result in the complete demise of his company. Because this article is so important, and yet so surprisingly innocuous in many ways, I'm going to read most of it here. I've lightly edited it to remove some things that aren't material. Quote, by now, you've likely heard how Peter Thiel parlayed a $500,000 investment in Facebook to a stake now worth $750 million. We know about his mansion, he rents it, clever, his butler, his early morning jogs. But what no one ever says out loud? Thiel is gay. Venture capital is a business about risk, but only the right kinds of risk. 
Unproven technology? Fine. A host of rivals? No problem. A gay founder? Oh, hey, wait a second. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But someone else, somewhere else, might take issue with it. The clubby ranks of VCs are mostly straight, white, and male. They instinctively prefer entrepreneurs who remind them of themselves. At best, it's a wrong-headed sense of caution. At worst, it's a prejudice with a handy alibi. I think it explains a lot about Feel, his disdain for convention, his quest to overturn established rules, and that's why I think it's important to say this. Peter Thiel, the smartest VC in the world, is gay. More power to him. Unquote. From a 2023 perspective, I admit this article isn't all that awful. Now, outing people's sexuality is a loaded issue, and I can't think of too many legitimate journalistic reasons where it would ever be appropriate. Though it appeared from all further reporting by other media sources that Thiel's sexuality wasn't a secret. It just wasn't something he advertised publicly. But there were no sources cited in the article, no request for a quote from Thiel, no indication of any actual journalism behind it. And I can see how he would take issue, especially since Nick Denton, Gawker's founder, wrote the following in the comments section under the article, quote, The only thing that's strange about Thiel's sexuality why on earth was he so paranoid about its discovery for so long, unquote. The article itself and the comments didn't even make much of a wave with the public when they were posted. Most people didn't even know who Peter Thiel was. You might ask why Denton would even bother with a Silicon Valley magnet, but he wanted to target Silicon Valley. In fact, he was prescient about the power that some people in Silicon Valley would eventually hold and his concerns about that power. As journalist Ben Smith says in his 2023 book, Traffic, quote, it took much of the press years to understand what Nick saw enviously at the time, that a new world of power and wealth was under construction, and that journalism would antagonize that new power, unquote. While Gawker's readers didn't give the article much thought, Peter Thiel, the subject of the article, definitely did. The article made an impact on him. A big one. It's probably true today that most people still don't know who Peter Thiel is. I admit that I didn't know a lot about him. I knew about this mess that we're talking about today and that he had spoken at the Republican National Convention in 2016. I knew he was in tech, but not much else. He's not a particularly high-profile tech figure compared to, say, Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. That doesn't mean he's not an important tech figure, however, because he is. Peter Thiel was the founder of PayPal and an early investor in Facebook, along with other tech companies like Airbnb, Lyft, and Spotify. He started Palantir, a data analytics company with some controversial customers that pops up in the news pretty regularly. Thiel himself has some very libertarian views and some views that skew pretty right-wing. And he seems to have a real disconnect at times between how he views himself and who he is, for example, he's written a book that argues against the ideas of multiculturalism and LGBTQ plus rights on college campuses, even though he is part of the LGBTQ plus community and he was born outside the United States. This disconnect about who he is and how he views himself extends to the thin-skinned response he had to the Gawker article, though I certainly think he was well within his rights to be mad about it. Here's the thing, though. I don't think it would have mattered to Thiel what the coverage was, and I don't necessarily think his anger was about Gawker's comments on his sexuality. Gawker was rude, and he didn't like this website poking around in his personal life. This next part is entirely my opinion, and you may or may not agree with it. When I was thinking about this issue, I kept coming back to two questions. First, is Peter Thiel a celebrity or a high-profile public figure? And secondly, what rights do celebrities have with their private information? See, the thing is, many tech moguls pretend that they are not celebrities or public figures when it suits them. But at the same time, they want to be able to tell people what they think and have those so-called nuggets of wisdom taken seriously. We see this so very clearly with Elon Musk, for example. I think that if you believe your opinion about, say, the war in Ukraine— is so very much more important than other people's, and you have the means to put that opinion out to millions of people, then you qualify as a public figure, and you are potentially subject to the same level of scrutiny turned on you that public figures get. You don't get to spew out things publicly that you want people to take very seriously 
and then hide behind some kind of special privacy veil. These guys, and let's face it, they're mostly guys, think that they have some special knowledge of things that don't have anything to do with their business acumen, and they have a platform to publicize their views that regular people or even people who know these areas well don't always have. So from that standpoint, someone like Thiel, who has published books about his thoughts about a lot of things outside his area of expertise, and who wants people to take his opinion very seriously and at a very high level, like, say, advising the President of the United States, I think that person gives up some of their privacy. Not all of it, mind you, but definitely. I think they are entitled to less privacy than a programmer working at PayPal who tweets about Ukraine to their 100 followers. You don't get to have your cake and eat it, too. Whatever my opinion, which I suspect Peter Thiel would disagree with, it wasn't just that Thiel was offended by the article personally, though it was at the front of his mind for years as he shared his anger with many, many people in his circle. But when the rest of the world seemed to be working against him, too, it seems his anger ratcheted up further. Thiel had started a hedge fund named Clarium in 2002, and while it had done exceptionally well for quite a few years, it started struggling in 2008 after the financial crash and a year after the article. Thiel felt the issues with Clarium reflected badly on him, and they probably did. Other things weren't going well for him either. He'd published an article in a publication for the Cato Institute, a Koch-founded libertarian think tank, and been mocked by his peers as a result, and mocked by Gawker once again. The headline this time, Facebook backer wishes women wouldn't vote. Owen Thomas wrote this article as well as the initial article about Thiel that so offended him, and in it, Thomas wonders if Thiel is on drugs. Yeesh. It seems like the combination of this new article and Thiel's issues with his media coverage overall started to make him feel like he was being targeted for persecution. His complaints got louder. He compared Gawker to al-Qaeda in an interview, but he didn't sue Gawker and he didn't even suggest it publicly. Most people, even lawyers, told him there was really nothing he could do. The bar for suing for libel when you're a public figure or celebrity like Peter Thiel is so much higher than it would be if you were a regular person suing a news outlet. This is because public figures and celebrities have a platform where they can openly challenge those potentially libelous statements. Regular people, as you imagine, don't usually have that option. Basically, the Supreme Court has ruled that proving libel as a public figure requires something called actual malice, which means that the person or organization making the statements knew that it was false or should have known it was false. So for Thiel, that was a bust. Sean Parker, the Napster guy, suggested he try to buy Gawker. And I'm not sure why Thiel didn't seriously consider this move, though, I mean, we've seen how well that's gone with Elon Musk and Twitter, though I assume Thiel would have bought Gawker and just shut it down. And while I may take issue with Peter Thiel, I'm not going to argue he's not smart. He most certainly is, and he's a smart guy with money who also has a very fancy law degree from Stanford. Most of my information on the nitty-gritty of what comes next came from a book written in 2018 called Conspiracy by Ryan Holiday. Holiday got access to almost everyone involved in Bolea v. Gawker, which is the name of the case, including several interviews with Thiel. Some of Holiday's information can be verified, but one very important piece of the puzzle involves a man that Holiday interviewed who is anonymous, who claims to have approached Thiel in 2011 at a conference in Germany and suggested a plan to take down Gawker. Ryan Holiday refers to this man as Mr. A in his book. The fact that the man has never spoken publicly to other people and that no one knows who this man is, I don't know. You know how I've said before to make sure your references are legit? I am struggling with this Mr. A, and so I've minimized a little what Ryan Holiday says about him in his book. You can read the book yourself if you want more, just don't take my word for it. This Mr. A got Thiel's blessing to try and take down Gawker. Mr. A then met with a lawyer named Charles Harder. Harder was an L.A.-based entertainment lawyer and kind of an unusual choice. He's been described as tall, blonde, and springing fully formed from a Brooks Brothers store. For example, George Clooney had hired him to sue businesses that had used Clooney's likeness without permission. Why Thiel and Mr. A picked harder, who knows? 
But when asked if he'd like to take down a major media outlet, Harder said yes. Mr. A never mentions Thiel in these conversations, and Harder never asks. Harder knows that the money isn't coming from Mr. A, but he never asks about that either. He just leaves his old law firm, starts his own law firm, and begins taking money to look into potential lawsuits started by other people. Because what Thiel and the mysterious Mr. A had decided was not to go after Gawker themselves, but to fund other cases against Gawker. They were looking for certain types of cases, certain types of lawsuits. You might ask, and I did too, whether they were looking for libel cases. In fact, they were looking for anything except libel. And there's a good reason for that. Hopefully you know what libel is. If not, or you aren't sure, well, Cornell Law defines it as, quote, a method of defamation expressed by print, writing, pictures, signs, effigies, or any communication embodied in physical form that is injurious to a person's reputation, exposes a person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or injures a person in his or her business or profession, unquote. While you can sue a news publication for libel and defamation, it is extremely hard to win. The news media has a number of legal avenues for disputing these charges, including, of course, the First Amendment and freedom of speech. This makes winning a case very, very hard, if not impossible. Harder, and by proxy Thiel, looked at almost 100 cases before they found one they wanted to support, and that wasn't based on libel or any First Amendment freedom of speech issues. That case was a lawsuit brought by a famous wrestler named Hulk Hogan. If you are an American and you are of a certain age, and especially if you are male, Hulk Hogan is someone you know. You may have even been a fan. Hogan was a huge part of the media landscape for kids in the 1980s. And before Hulk Hogan was Hulk Hogan, he was a man named Terry Balea. He was the son of a pipe fitter from Florida and seemed destined for something sports-related fairly early on. He was already six feet tall at age 12. Hogan began wrestling in his early 20s after a couple of wrestlers who worked out at the same gym encouraged him to try it. I won't get into the details here, but it's enough to know that he spent some number of years wrestling before really making it big in the World Wrestling Federation in 1983. For my non-American listeners, the WWF was the very large, very loud, very flashy wrestling organization that dominated wrestling entertainment for decades in the U.S. This is the kind of wrestling where a lot of the drama is off the mat. Wrestlers yelling into the microphone about how they're going to end their opponent, the bad guy, good guy storyline, the heel turn, and Hulk Hogan was the very tippy top of that entire period. Huge, tanned, blonde, dressed in yellow, with a penchant for ripping off his tank top at every opportunity. It was loud and silly and fun, and the related merchandise was everywhere. Hulk Hogan was a mega celebrity, and everyone knew who he was. If you knew one professional wrestler, it was probably him. Hogan parlayed that celebrity into many other areas, acting in movies like Rocky III, his own Saturday morning cartoon, and even a reality show about his life and his family. His professional life appeared to be winding down after the turn of the millennium. He was 52 in 2005 when his reality show went on the air, and he had, as you imagine, several serious sports injuries from his time in the ring. However, his personal life was kind of a disaster. His daughter, Brooke, wanted to be a pop star in the vein of Britney Spears, and she did have some minor success, and his son wanted to be a race car driver, which his parents probably should have squashed since he got into several serious car accidents involving reckless driving on public roads. In 2006, Hogan's wife, Linda, left him and moved out while the show was being taped and in 2007, his son caused a serious car crash that resulted in debilitating injuries for the 27-year-old passenger. Hogan paid out some undisclosed but quite large amount to settle that claim because he didn't have adequate insurance coverage. He later sued his insurance agent for not suggesting Hogan buy umbrella coverage. Insurance matters, people. Later that same year, his wife files for divorce and his reality show is canceled. Hogan was a bit of a mess, as you might imagine, given his son's legal troubles and his divorce. 
His best friend, a radio host in Florida named Todd Clem, who later changes his name legally to Bubba the Love Sponge. I know, I know. Todd Clem provided emotional support. And Todd provided something more. One day in 2007, he invited Hogan to his house and suggested that Hogan have sex with Todd's wife, Heather. I can sort of imagine that Hogan's life as a celebrity did involve some interesting personal experiences, and his ex-wife had accused him of cheating, but according to Hogan, this was something Clem had joked about, but Hogan had never acted on. This time, Hogan took Heather up on the offer, although before he did, he said to Todd Clem, you're not filming this, are you? To which Todd responded, what is wrong with you? I am, expletive, best friend. Why Hogan asked this, you can only wonder. He wasn't wrong, though. Clem was filming. And Clem filmed Hogan and Heather numerous times. Clem remained his best friend, and at one point, Hogan even moved in with them for a while. But eventually, Hogan moved on and didn't give it another thought. He tried to rebuild his life, he found religion, and he got married again. And then five years later, in March of 2012, the gossip website TMZ.com reported that there was a Hulk Hogan sex tape. Hogan immediately replied he had no idea what they were talking about, but that didn't stop several companies from offering to buy it. Blurry images from the tape suddenly appeared online, and Hogan realized immediately what he was seeing. TMZ punted on the tape itself. No one offered it to them, and they didn't know how to get a hold of it. But the publicist for TMZ sent that information to Gawker, because at that time, Gawker was much bigger than TMZ and got a lot more page views. Not much happened, though, until September of that year, when the editor-in-chief of Gawker, A.J. Delario, got a message from a man who said he had a client with a very important DVD, and the client wanted to send it to Gawker. The envelope arrived with no return address, and inside there was a 30-minute video of Hogan and Heather. Gawker edited it down to the highlights, 1 minute 41 seconds, and on October 4, 2012, they posted it to the website, everything, on display. They could have chosen to pixelate the scandalous bits, but they didn't. They didn't investigate the hows and whys of the tape, and they certainly didn't go to Hogan and ask for a comment. If you remember the early 2000s, you'll also remember that celebrity sex tapes were all over the place. Paris Hilton, Pam Anderson twice, and of course, Kim Kardashian. Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee had gone to court over their sex tape and were humiliated by the defense lawyers. And even though they technically won, the tape was still out there. The general feeling was that it was just better to accept it or take the money to sell it. But Hogan didn't feel that way. Hogan's lawyer, a man named David Houston, immediately sent a letter demanding the video be taken down. Denton, in line with his general position about lawyers and lawsuits, ignored it. Hogan then went on the Today Show and cried. Hogan's lawyer was trying to figure out his next move when he got a phone call from another lawyer, a man named Charles Harder. Ding, ding, ding. Harder said he wanted to help. His client wanted to support Hogan financially in any lawsuit he decided to file. It's hard to understate what an amazing offer this was, and Hogan's lawyer was shocked, but didn't ask questions. He just said, yes. Neither Hogan's lawyer nor Hogan knew that Peter Thiel was involved and that Peter had given Harder approval to spend whatever money was necessary to win the case. Both lawyers, Harder and Houston, spent the weekend building a case, and on Monday, Harder filed lawsuits in Pinellas County, Florida, against Todd and Heather Clem, and in the federal courts against Gawker. Press releases went out, and the lawsuit detailed the following claims. 1. Invasion of privacy. 2. Publication of private facts. 3. Violation of the Florida common law right of publicity. 4. Intentional infliction of emotional distress. And 5. Negligent infliction of emotional distress. Todd Clem settled quickly out of court for something like $5,000? As part of that settlement, Clem gave the copyright of the tape to Hogan, 
which gave Hogan a stronger position in court in regards to removing the tape from Gawker's website. And the lawyers added a copyright claim to the federal filing, hoping that the copyright claim would convince the courts that the tape needed to be taken down. As to the lawsuit against Gawker, Denton seemed kind of unconcerned. And in fact, early court rulings suggested he had nothing to worry about. The restraining order that was meant to make Gawker take down the video, which was still up on their website, was rejected in federal court. Harder and Houston tried again with another federal filing to force Gawker to take the video down, a preliminary injunction request, and that was also shot down by the same judge. The video could stay up indefinitely. Charles Harder was smart enough to figure out that maybe federal court was not the best place to try the case against Gawker based on these first two losses they'd suffered. There was one other option, to focus on state court instead. Harder's team decided to amend the Florida lawsuit to add Gawker. Gawker's lawyers, a New York firm called Levine, Sullivan, Koch, and Schultz, who were very well-regarded First Amendment attorneys, challenged this venue move. Unfortunately, they failed. The case could move forward in state court. And Florida state court was much, much, much more amenable to Hogan's requests. They granted a temporary injunction against the tape, which meant the tape had to be removed from Gawker's site until a final trial verdict. I should note that this was eventually overturned in a higher court, but since Gawker simply refused to even abide by the original order to remove the tape, nothing changed. The tape was still online. Gawker seemed to feel like they were invincible, since up until this point, no lawsuit had ever even made it this far, to the point where people were starting to prepare for trial. If you listen to my podcast on Lloyd's and the asbestos crisis, you'll remember that one of the things that the lawyers fighting asbestos manufacturers wanted wasn't just a verdict in their favor. It was the right to discovery, the right to request internal documents from the asbestos companies that might prove what those companies knew, when they knew it, and whether or not they deliberately covered things up. Charles Harder wanted internal Gawker documents, and he wanted to depose Gawker employees, especially the owner, Nick Denton, and the editor who had decided to publish the sex tape, A.J. Delario. Even more important and somehow overlooked by Gawker and their lawyers was the implication of two things that happened even before discovery. First, they had an insurance problem, which was about to bite them in the behind. I'll get to that in more detail later. Second, there was an interesting caveat to appealing a civil verdict in Florida, assuming, say, that Gawker lost the lawsuit and decided to appeal. If you wanted to appeal a civil verdict in Florida, you had to post a bond equal to the amount of the verdict, subject to a cap of $50 million. You have to prove you will have the money to pay the initial verdict if you lose the appeal. Gawker's revenues in 2013 were $35 million. Harder's lawsuit against Gawker deliberately asked for $100 million in damages. I think you can do the math. If it wasn't clear to Gawker's lawyers and Gawker that this lawsuit was trying to bankrupt the company before, it sure should have been the minute the venue was moved. Even so, Gawker just didn't seem to take the whole thing seriously, and I know that was partly because Nick Denton's belief that he couldn't lose. But at the same time, I have to think that the law firm was just screaming at him to get it together. I can only imagine what conversations happened. But where everything went wrong is that it doesn't appear that anyone at Gawker prepped for the depositions. To date, knock on wood, I have not been deposed for my actions as an underwriter. I suspect that due to the types of things I wrote as an underwriter and the fact that most of them have very long tails, meaning claims take a long time to develop, I probably will be deposed someday. I certainly know plenty of insurance people who have been deposed, and anyone who has will tell you, you get prepped. There is work involved. You spend time with the lawyers who grill you. They don't want you to be unprepared when the imposing side asks you questions. It's usually very involved. So how the heck Gawker's employees and the owner didn't get properly prepped is just an absolute mystery to me. Like, even if Denton had said, I'm not interested, 
How is it that the insurance companies, how is it that the law firm didn't just put their very big feet down and say, hey, it's our way or the highway, buddy? I just do not even know. A.J. Delario, the editor who published the sex tape at Gawker, was the first to be deposed in September 2013. He was so blasé about the whole thing that he didn't even stop himself from this remarkable exchange which will likely haunt him forever. Lawyer. Can you imagine a situation where a celebrity sex tape would not be newsworthy? Delario. If they were a child. Lawyer. Under what age? Delario. Four. Lawyer. So, no four-year-old sex tapes. Okay. I mean, that is just astounding. Nick Denton was also deposed, and though he didn't make such a massive mistake, it's still pretty clear that Gawker viewed the entire deposition process as a joke. Denton said in the deposition that he'd never even watched the Hogan sex tape, which, I mean, good for him, I guess, but it suggests he had very little interest or control over his company. Denton went further after the deposition in an interview with a journalist where he said about Hogan in the case, and I quote, I don't really understand what they want, do you? I find their motivations hard to follow. I don't really understand the relationship between the lawyers and Hogan. I don't understand who's getting what out of this, unquote. And then in the same interview, Denton outed another celebrity's sexuality, although the reporter did not include that in their final story. After all the depositions were over, Gawker made their first attempt at a settlement. That offer had no financial component, and Gawker basically said they would let Hogan dropped the case and would not force Hogan to pay Gawker's attorney fees. How kind. (laughs) By the time 2014 rolled around, two years after the initial filing, nothing had been decided, but it seemed very likely that the case would go to trial. It's at this point that things get much worse for Gawker because Charles Harder called Gawker's general liability insurance company. He tells the insurance company that he's going to drop the claim for emotional distress. This means that the insurance company can now tell Gawker that there is no longer any claim that their policy would cover. It also means that Gawker now has no remaining insurance coverage because they've already blown through their media liability policy, which was the only other policy they had to help them with this lawsuit. What does that mean? It means that if Gawker goes to trial and they lose, payment of the verdict is entirely Gawker's responsibility. By this time, not surprisingly, Gawker's legal fees had become enormous. Hogan was starting to wonder if it was all worth it, which I entirely understand. The lawsuit had been ongoing for three years by then. Peter Thiel was getting tired too, but Charles Harder sure wasn't. He saw blood in the water. Not to mention, Peter Thiel and his funding of the Hogan case was not only Harder's largest client, but pretty much the only client keeping him in business. I mean, the legal filings in this case alone totaled at least 25,000 pages. Gawker filed a request to push the trial back further, which was granted, moving the trial from mid-2015 to spring 2016, but then something happened. The National Enquirer published information related to the sex tape made by Todd Clem, but these items weren't sexual. Instead, they were recordings of Hogan spouting racist garbage. It appeared that these comments were on the tapes that Gawker received, but Gawker didn't publish these parts. How those tapes got to the National Enquirer when only Gawker had the tapes in their possession? Well, there are rumors. Nothing's ever proven, but. It's certainly suspicious. It would have made sense at this point for Hogan to drop his suit against Gawker only because the public reaction to this new information was overwhelmingly negative. The WWF kicks him out of their Hall of Fame. He loses what few endorsement deals he still has. Financially, he's headed south, but the suit doesn't end. I think even before this, someone at Gawker or their lawyer's offices or at the insurance company must have asked the question about Who was helping Hogan pay his legal fees? Yeah, Hogan had some money, but his finances had not been the same after his divorce, and frankly, the amount of money that was being burned on the case was enormous. Gawker tried to settle finally. They offered Hogan $10 million. Hogan turned it down. 
It's possible Gawker also countered with a higher number, but no one will admit to that. Either way, no settlement was reached, and they went to trial. I could do an entire episode on the mess that was the trial, but the short version is this. Harder was successful in getting the jury he wanted, which was overwhelmingly older people, the kind of people who probably didn't own a smartphone in 2016 and certainly didn't read Gawker. Florida only requires six people to sit on a civil jury, so it was up to just six people to decide Gawker's fate. Gawker needed to prove that the sex tape was newsworthy enough that Hogan's right to privacy was voided. They presented evidence that Hogan had talked about his sex life publicly in great detail on many occasions. From the defense's side, Hogan presented himself on the stand as humble and argued that Hulk Hogan was a character and that he was really Terry Bollea, a private citizen, and that the tape was a tape of him, Terry Bollea, private citizen, and not Hulk Hogan, media celebrity. When they put A.J. Delario on the stand, the defense lawyers made sure to bring up his comments about whether or not he would publish sex tapes of a four-year-old on the website if it was newsworthy. Not good. As Ryan Holiday says in Conspiracy, quote, This trial was an exercise in stupidity. A smart person would have seen that even an insincere apology would have made all the difference. A smart person would never have let it get this far. Whether the conspirators were brilliant or just rich can reasonably be argued, but what is indisputable is the fact that their victims marched toward their fate quite sure they were heading in the other direction, unquote. The jury took less than a day to deliberate. The verdict was brutal. That $100 million that Charles Harder asked for, the jury went much further than that. A $115 million award, $60 million for emotional distress, and $55 million for economic damages. Then another $25 million in punitive damages. $10 million of that punitive verdict was directed at Denton personally, with another 100000 of the verdict directed to A.J. Delario. The jurors said afterward they would have made Delario's verdict higher, but the trial had revealed he was basically penniless. Denton wanted to appeal, but again, to appeal a civil verdict in Florida, remember they would have had to post a bond for 50% of the verdict, subject to that $50 million cap, which in this case meant Gawker would have to post a $50 million bond. They did not have that kind of money. What Peter Thiel wanted... He got. Gawker was toast. When I look at this case, I think it's a great example of how Gawker's seeming inability to obtain adequate insurance coverage hurt them. Could insurance have protected Gawker and kept them in business after such a large verdict? Probably. And frankly, the cost of coverage would have been well worth it. But for whatever reason, Gawker just did not take insurance coverage very seriously. And they paid for it. What we know about their insurance is primarily because of a lawsuit that their general liability insurance company, Nautilus, filed against them. According to the legal documents, Gawker had a general liability policy with Nautilus with an effective date of 4-27-12 and a $1 million occurrence limit. The premium was a whopping $3,200. We also know that Gawker had an errors and emissions policy covering media liability with Chubb. And we know that that policy covered defense costs only, with a limit of $750,000. The media liability policy is important. The coverage provided by that policy would generally cover libel, slander or defamation, invasion of privacy, copyright infringement, and any errors, omissions, misstatements, or misleading statements by Gawker, though I don't know specifically how the policy wording read for this particular policy. So, Two insurance policies, limits of a million and 750000 Gawker is a big media company, although it doesn't have a lot of physical space and it doesn't manufacture anything a consumer could injure themselves with. From a GL standpoint, assuming that personal and advertising injury was excluded, you might be able to argue that Gawker only needed a million dollars in coverage, but I would argue that a million dollars was insufficient because one serious accident on their premises could blow through that easily. But why was their media liability policy so small? Why didn't their insurance agent or broker push them to buy more coverage? Gawker was a company with $35 million in revenue, and its peak had something like 40 million readers a month. Not to mention they published gossip and sex tapes. 
what happened here? They should have had a media liability tower of at least $35 million and probably more. The market could support it. There was capacity. And if somebody wants to anonymously quote me a theoretical Gawker media liability tower for, say, $100 million in limits, please, I would love to see it. In regards to the $1 million general liability policy, the insurance company Nautilus mostly writes through MGAs, managing general agents, who are insurance agents who can underwrite and bind Nautilus policies on their own within certain guidelines. We don't know if anyone at Nautilus actually looked at this policy or approved it. On the first page of the policy, there is a section where the business being insured must be described. The business description on the Nautilus general liability policy says office and not media conglomerate with a whole bunch of websites. If you are a general liability underwriter, you know this could be a problem. The policy did exclude personal and advertising injury, which is what you'd expect when writing a GL policy that covers a publishing business. The person at Gawker who obtained the policy told the agent or the insurance company or the MGA, someone, that they had a separate errors and emissions media liability policy and that they only needed office liability exposure and occasionally event coverage. The GL policy also had a designated operations exclusion that said they would only cover, quote, those operations performed by any insured that are described on the general liability coverage part declarations, the endorsements or supplements of this insurance, unquote. And what did the declarations say? They said office. And then for some unknown reason, Gawker canceled the Nautilus general liability policy on October 22nd, 2012, right after the lawsuit was filed. We don't know why they canceled it, and we don't know if anything replaced it. Canceling seems like a boneheaded move, just in my opinion. In 2013, Gawker sent the Bolea lawsuit to Nautilus and said, hey, defend us. This is about a year after the initial lawsuit was filed, which seems like it was, I don't know, a bit late to be reporting a claim. Nautilus, not surprisingly, fought it. Their argument was pretty solid. A, the policy excluded personal and advertising injury. B, it covered only the office in Manhattan and bodily injury and property damage that happened in that office. Gawker continued to fight in court to get Nautilus to defend them and to pay out some of the insurance and lawyers' fees. The real issue here was that while Nautilus was right that the charges filed by Hulk Hogan against Gawker were generally not covered by a general liability policy since personal and advertising injury was excluded, one of the charges was the infliction of emotional distress. And this is where the GL policy gets a bit murky, even if personal advertising injury coverage is not provided. A general liability policy covers bodily injury and property damage arising out of an occurrence, and that occurrence has to be an accident. Remember, bodily injury, property damage, and occurrence are all words that have very specific definitions within the general liability policy. So let's look at that definition of bodily injury. While different policies can and do define bodily injury differently, the standard definition, which is likely what Nautilus used, is as follows, quote, bodily injury means bodily injury, sickness, or disease sustained by a person, including death, resulting from any of these at any time. Sickness, disease, and death are not defined terms by the policy, which means there is sometimes a little bit of wiggle room in terms of what is considered sickness or disease. I mean, death is pretty much, well, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. Some courts have defined disease as including mental disease, which could, in theory, include emotional distress. But here's the catch. Most of the time, courts require emotional distress to arise out of an actual physical injury. It just can't be emotional distress alone. There has to be some actual injury that causes the emotional distress. But not all courts see it that way. Some courts are more open to allowing the GL to cover emotional distress alone under their interpretation of bodily injury, sickness, and disease. While Nautilus believed that they did not cover emotional distress, they couldn't just void the policy. They actually had to go to court to determine if they had to provide coverage. In the meantime, this meant that Nautilus had to pay some portion of the defense costs for Gawker. 
If the court determined that Nautilus provided no coverage to Gawker, Nautilus could stop paying anything to Gawker and then could go after Gawker to get the money they had paid returned. So when Charles Harder called Nautilus and told them they were dropping the emotional distress claim, Nautilus was definitely free from providing any additional potential coverage. Now, mind you, if Gawker had bought an umbrella policy, they would likely have had coverage for this emotional distress claim from that policy. If you aren't familiar with umbrella and excess coverage and haven't listened to any of my other episodes, think of it as a ladder with multiple steps. The first step is the general liability policy. The next step is an umbrella or excess policy. The general liability policy is the primary policy, meaning it pays out first. And then if there's a need for more coverage limit than the GL can provide, the umbrella or excess policy is activated. Typically, umbrella and some excess policies define bodily injury slightly differently than a general liability policy does. The definition of bodily injury often includes humiliation, mental anguish, shock, or mental injury. You can see how emotional distress would probably fall within one of those terms. And here's the catch. Even though typically an umbrella or excess policy sits above a general liability policy and is not triggered until that general liability policy's limits are exhausted, that is not the case here. Common wording on these policies includes the following. Quote, we shall have the right and duty to defend any claim or suit seeking damages covered by the terms and conditions of this policy when damages are sought for bodily injury, property damage, or personal and advertising injury, unquote. In plain English, this means that the umbrella or excess policy would drop down. They would provide primary first-dollar coverage in this case, whereas the general liability policy would not. Even better, Gawker might have had first-dollar drop-down coverage not only for the emotional distress claim, but for the invasion of privacy claim, copyright, and other claims filed by Hogan if the umbrella or excess policy had decided to include personal and advertising injury, since the GL had excluded it. Whoever decided on the insurance for Gawker blew it, in my opinion, big time. Separate from the insurance issue, the other big thing that comes up when people talk about this trial is the issue of something called litigation funding. In this case, it's very different from what most people expect. If you don't know what litigation funding is, it's basically when an uninvolved third party, like a hedge fund, offers to pay some portion of the plaintiff's legal fees for a case, and in return they get some portion of the verdict if the lawsuit is successful. If the plaintiff doesn't have the money to pay their legal fees and they have a really good claim, litigation funding can be a possible option especially if the case looks to be expensive to litigate. But historically, litigation funding hasn't always been legal. The concept of litigation funding has been around since Greek and Roman times, believe it or not, although in the past it had a different name. It was called champerty. In the U.S., currently 18 states allow champerty, a.k.a. litigation funding. These days, though, there are restrictions. There are several reasons why litigation funding is so problematic that it was banned for hundreds of years. There's the question of conflict of interest. Who is the lawyer serving, the litigation funder or the plaintiff? Does it help or hurt the legal system to inject so much money into it, money that's just there to make a profit? Most, if not all, litigation funding is done to make money, just to be clear. But in the case of Peter Thiel, it wasn't about making money. He probably did make some money off of it, although there's never really been a clear answer on this. This was vigilante justice, a vendetta, and wanting to bankrupt a company. Overall, he invested about $10 million into the suit. And the lawyers weren't serving the plaintiff. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Hogan wanted the tape taken down, an apology, and some financial compensation. But Thiel's involvement meant that the lawyers weren't looking to obtain those three things. They were looking to bankrupt Gawker, which is probably an ethical violation on their part and definitely a conflict of interest. And it's a good example of how litigation financing can go wrong. Hogan's wishes as the client were not the most important thing to his legal team. 
I would also be lax in my analysis if I didn't touch briefly on the $25 million punitive damage award. For those of you who are not familiar with punitive damage, this is something that is done to punish the defendant financially, not to compensate a plaintiff for some damage or injury. In theory, punitive damages are supposed to encourage companies, and it's mostly companies, to avoid doing things that would lead to lawsuits. Even if Gawker had wanted to obtain insurance coverage for punitive damages, it is technically illegal for insurance to cover this because if you can get an insurance company to pay your punitive damages, then those punitive damages aren't hurting the company they're supposed to hurt, and they certainly don't act as a way to discourage companies from doing things that hurt people. However, some insurance companies are clever, and they have found ways to get around this by offering either something called most favored venue coverage or something called a punitive wrap, which involves a non-U.S. insurance company in a special form. At some point, I will probably do a whole episode on this because, to date, no claim has ever been paid out in court from punitive damage insurance coverage. And so the issue of how these forms would work, and if they work at all, has never really been resolved. And frankly, should it? The ethics of offering coverage workarounds for something that's supposedly illegal is, in my opinion, extremely murky. If Gawker had thought more seriously about their insurance coverage, if they had, frankly, taken the thought of being sued seriously, the Hogan verdict might not have bankrupted them. Maybe. If you've listened to any of my other episodes about specific legal cases, you will already suspect that the amount of money Hogan actually got, and of course that also went to Charles Harder and Peter Thiel, is a lot less than the actual verdict, and of course, you'd be right. Gawker eventually settled with Hogan for $31 million. No money was paid out by A.J. Delario in the end, And Nick Denton also paid out nothing. Instead, he gave Hogan about $15 million in shares in Gawker. So we went from a verdict of $115 million with $25 million additional in punitive damage in total $140 million to $31 million and $15 million in shares. Since Gawker quickly became worth almost nothing, we really went from $140 to $31 which I think is an excellent example of how these things go. What the courts decide on and what actually gets paid are often very, very different. It's a good thing to keep in mind when you hear about large court verdicts. The insurance, the media liability policy, and the general liability policy probably paid out somewhere between one to two million in total, if you consider that most of it was contribution to defense costs. Nautilus may have been able to go after Gawker for reimbursement on defense costs, but there was probably no money left. From the insurance versus history front, I think this is one of those situations where, had there been insurance, I would have called it a win for insurance, especially since the final paid-out amount was, well, probably a limit Gawker could have afforded to purchase and that the market would have offered in terms of insurance coverage. But Gawker, for whatever reason, didn't buy the insurance that would have protected them. I suspect the Gawker case caused a lot of other media companies to rethink their insurance programs, and that for sure is a win for insurance. For Gawker, the verdict, in part because they had no adequate insurance coverage to help pay some or all of it, meant bankruptcy. Six of the company's websites were sold to Univision Communications, who renamed them Gizmodo Media Group. In 2019, Univision sold those sites to a private equity firm named Great Hill Partners for an undisclosed amount. The new company was called GO Media and included sites like Gizmodo, Jalopnik, and Lifehacker, along with some other websites that were not related to the old Gawker, including humor site The Onion. They're still around. The remaining parts of Gawker, including the rights to Gawker.com, were sold in a government bankruptcy auction in 2018. Peter Thiel was in the running to buy those rights with the apparent aim to shut down the Gawker name permanently, but for whatever reason, it never went through. A company called Bustle Digital Group bought the assets, tried to restart Gawker in 2021, and shuttered the site entirely in February 2023. The website, gawker.com, is still online, but the stories all date from January 2023 or earlier. Peter Thiel, 
had told only a few friends about his involvement in the Hogan case while it was going on, and he told a few more after it ended, and one of them likely outed his involvement to the press, though no one, even Peter, knows who that was. Forbes ran an article stating that Thiel had funded the Hogan lawsuit in May of 2016, and soon after, Thiel publicly acknowledged his involvement to the New York Times. The reaction to Thiel's funding of the Hogan lawsuit was so negative that it effectively recast Gawker, Denton, and Delario as victims in the entire thing, which had to have pissed Thiel off. That didn't stop Thiel from pursuing his personal goals. He established a foundation with the stated goal of funding lawsuits that would change the law in the direction he desired it to change, which is still around. Thiel very publicly backed Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 and financially backed politicians J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley, both part of the MAGA right wing. He's also supported MAGA candidates Blake Masters in Arizona and Chris Kobach of Kansas. On the non-political front, he also supported some very questionable medical research and an attempt to create a woolly mammoth from DNA a la Jurassic Park. He put some money into facial recognition software Clearview AI, and he led the charge among tech companies in removing money from Silicon Valley Bank, which went under in 2023. And of course, his data analytics company Palantir, which the U.S. government uses for counterterrorism analysis and is controversial for its use as a predictive policing system, among other things, continues to make news and is worth more than $40 billion. Nick Denton declared bankruptcy after the Gawker verdict and decamped to Zurich. He started working on a new tech project, building a text message-based social network. He's kept a very low profile. His last tweet was from 2020. He moved back to New York City during COVID and is still working on his new tech project with no launch date available. Delario had been dealing with drug, alcohol, and gambling issues for years, and definitely during his time at Gawker, which might have explained his unfortunate conversation about sex tapes involving children. He went to rehab and had just gotten sober when the trial happened. After Thiel was revealed to be the money behind the lawsuit, Delario did a kind of redemption tour, giving interviews with several large publications and generally trying to rehabilitate his image. These days, he has a subscription newsletter and a podcast, but he doesn't keep a high profile. Hulk Hogan went on suing people for various things without the financial support of Peter Thiel or the legal support of Charles Harder. He was eventually reinstated to the WWF Hall of Fame. He divorced again and eventually became a host at the WWF, now called WWE after a lawsuit by the World Wildlife Federation. Hogan has had several serious surgeries for back injuries sustained during his wrestling career. There was a rumored biopic of Hulk Hogan starring Chris Hemsworth, but that appears to be on hold. Charles Harder made a lot of money off the Hogan case, likely something in the $30 million range. While Hogan and Thiel was his main client for several years, he parlayed his success with the Hogan case into several higher-profile cases, mostly involving problematic celebrities. He represented Sean Hannity, Roger Ailes, and Harvey Weinstein for a while, although he was not the lawyer on Weinstein's eventual criminal case. Harder then began representing the Trump family while Trump was president, including trying to stop the publication of Michael Wolff's book about Donald Trump, representing Melania after the Daily Mail said she had worked as an escort, defending Trump against the lawsuit brought by Stormy Daniels, and defending Jared Kushner after the Mueller report was released. So, if you thought the name Charles Harder sounded familiar, well, there you go. Bolea v. Gawker still fascinates people, and the analysis of what it means for journalism is still ongoing. A documentary called Nobody Speak was released in 2017. Ryan Holiday released his book about the case called Conspiracy in 2018, and more recently, journalist Ben Smith released a book titled Traffic in 2023, which includes Gawker in his overall analysis of the early age of journalistic websites, including the HuffPo, BuzzFeed, and the Drudge Report. It's worth a read. In terms of journalism, not only did the Gawker verdict put fear into journalists everywhere, it's important to note that Gawker had an impact on journalism as a whole, regardless of the court case. With Nick Denton's relentless desire for page views, 
Gawker was one of the early websites that revolutionized the way we think about page views and traffic. They were one of the first sites to use SEO, search engine optimization, and to figure out how Google used that information to moderate search results. Gawker's comment sections looked an awful lot like Twitter does these days, Musk notwithstanding. If you want to know why it seems like every Trump story spawns 10 more Trump stories, well, Gawker is why. If a story got a lot of page views at Gawker, even angry ones, well, that meant they wrote a lot more about those types of stories. Other news publications started to take note. Much of what Gawker did actually became part of social media today, for better or worse. And that is something we can't seem to escape, no matter how much we try. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording.